We're recording this episode on Super Bowl Sunday. While the grown-ups are inside getting things ready for the big game, setting out the dips and chips, preparing the hot wings, and icing down the beer, kids all around the country are outside. Maybe they're in a city park, dividing up into teams of six or seven, huddling up. One of them is the quarterback, Brady or Mahomes, calling the play, sketching it out in the grass or maybe tracing it on the palm of her hand. You go here, then turn around. You go long. Stay back for a short pass. The rest of you try to get open. On two. The defense lines up. You take him. I've got her. Set. Hut. Hut. One one thousand. Two one thousand. Three one thousand. Four one thousand. The quarterback lets it fly. Maybe it's a touchdown. Or not. It doesn't matter. They'll just line up and do it again. Or maybe it's just one kid out on a country road somewhere in the flat, desolate Texas panhandle. There aren't any other kids to play with, but he has a ball, and that's all he needs. He throws it as high as he can. He runs underneath it and makes a spectacular one-hand grab. He stiff-arms imaginary opponents as he reverses field and runs for the wooden telephone pole at the end of the gravel road. He high-steps into the end zone and spikes the ball, imagining that the wind blowing through the sparse trees is the crowd cheering. Then he does it again. No matter where they are, kids all over the country today are hoping that one day, Their dreams will come true, and they'll don the colors of their favorite team and hoist the Lombardi trophy over their heads. For a lucky few, that dream will come true one day. But as someone once said, be careful what you wish for. So mix yourself a Cape Cod and listen to the cautionary tale of Aaron Hernandez and his dreams of glory. Aaron Hernandez was born in Bristol, Connecticut in 1989. His parents were Dennis Hernandez and Terry Valentine Hernandez. It wasn't a happy marriage. There were lots of fights and separations. In fact, the couple actually divorced and remarried once. Dennis was a very demanding father, insisting that his sons excel in sports and school. He could also be physically abusive. Aaron showed up to school or practice on more than one occasion with a black eye. Once, Dennis punched Aaron's youth football coach during a game because he didn't like the plays that were being called. And he was also extremely homophobic. When he was six years old, Aaron's brother, Dennis, or DJ, said that Aaron was sexually abused by the son of one of their babysitters and that the abuse continued for years. Aaron never spoke of it until much later. In 2006, when Aaron was 16, Dennis died during routine hernia surgery. Despite their stormy relationship, Aaron was devastated. He never really recovered from the trauma of his father's death. His relationship with his mother deteriorated as well. He eventually moved in with his mother's cousin, Tanya Singleton, and her husband, Jeff. Jeff it turns out, was having an affair with Aaron's mother, Terry, and soon divorced Tanya and moved in with Terry. Aaron was enraged. It was around this time that he became even more deeply involved with drugs and criminal behavior. Despite the plane wreck that was his home and personal life, Aaron excelled in sports and school. He was very popular. As a senior, He was named the Connecticut Gatorade Football Player of the Year. He was selected as a U.S. Army All-American. He began dating his lifelong companion, Shayana Jenkins. But the drug use and the drinking escalated. 
Aaron committed to play college football at the University of Connecticut with his older brother, DJ. But he changed his mind when Aaron Meyer of the University of Florida came calling, along with his star quarterback, Tim Tebow. They convinced Aaron to decommit to UConn and come to Florida. They also talked to the high school principal and convinced him to let Aaron graduate more than a semester early so he could move to Gainesville in time for spring practice and start learning the playbook. He could play in the NFL someday, they told him. Against his better judgment, the principal agreed to allow Aaron to graduate. So, at barely 17 years of age, this immature, angry teenager left home for college. In retrospect, it really wasn't a good idea. Later, a columnist for the Boston Globe said that at that point, Aaron was an angry teenager, struggling with abusive upbringing, a growing dependence on drugs, and questions about his own sexual identity. From then on, Aaron's life is a contrast in spirals. Growing success on the football field and growing violence off the field. Shortly after arriving in Gainesville, he and Tebow went to a local bar for drinks. Aaron became upset and left without paying. The manager escorted them out, and Aaron sucker-punched him, leaving him with a ruptured eardrum. He was charged with a felony, but the case was eventually settled with reduced charges and a large payout to the manager. On the field... Aaron began his career as a Gator with a decent freshman campaign, but ended the season on a low note as he tested positive for pot. He was suspended for the first game of his sophomore season. He was known as one of the hardest workers on the team, but wasn't popular in the locker room with his teammates. He spent a lot of time with other people, drinking and getting high. Later, he said that he was high every time he took the field at Florida. Coach Meyer was getting fed up. He wanted to kick him off the team, but Tebow intervened and convinced him to let Aaron stay. In his junior year, Aaron led the Gators in receptions and won the John Mackey Award as the nation's top tight end. But Urban Meyer was done. He told Aaron that he needed to make himself eligible for the NFL draft because he wouldn't be welcome back at Florida for his senior year. Most of the early draft predictions projected him as a second-round pick, but his off-the-field issues and rumors of multiple drug test failures dropped him to the fourth round, where he was finally picked by the New England Patriots. The Pats, concerned about his drug use, offered him a $2.37 million contract with a $200,000 signing bonus, well below the league's usual payday. They loaded the contract with incentives that could raise it to a higher amount if he met certain conditions. A friend said that he could make a lot of money if he stayed on the straight and narrow. A friend later said that being drafted by the Patriots was the worst thing that could have happened to Aaron, because it brought him back to New England and put him in close proximity with his old high school friends. In fact, Aaron soon hired some of them to be his personal assistants. One of them, Alex Bradley, had an extensive criminal record and was known to be Aaron's drug dealer. He also supplied Aaron with weapons. His other job was to try to keep him calm when Aaron got upset. After his first season... The Patriots traded for a wide receiver named Chad Johnson, who had changed his name to Chad Ochocinco after his jersey number, 85. At the time, that was Aaron's number on the Patriots. Aaron told Chad he could have the number and he would just go back to wearing his college number, 81. When curious reporters asked why Aaron gave up the number, the Patriots were told it was just one teammate being respectful and courteous to another. In truth, when he heard about the trade, Aaron sent his agent to Chad and told him that he could have number 85 for $75,000. Chad countered at $50,000 and Aaron accepted. He used the money to loan to make a loan to his husband's cousin to start a marijuana wholesale business. 
By the end of his second season with the Patriots, Aaron had established himself as one of the best tight ends in the NFL, along with his teammate Ron Gronkowski. He started in the 2011 Super Bowl, and after the season, the Patriots awarded him with an almost $40 million contract. As much as he contributed to the team's success on the field, the story in the locker room was much the same as it had been in Gainesville. He wasn't very popular with his teammates and frequently made homophobic jokes in the locker room. Tom Brady considered him to be a handful, though at Tim Tebow's urging, he tried to mentor Aaron without much success. It wasn't really working. Coach Bill Belichick was getting fed up with the antics and the continued drug use. By 2012, Aaron's life had continued to spiral out of control. One night in South Boston, Aaron and his friends were at a club. According to some witnesses, they got into an argument with another group. Someone may have spilled a drink on someone. Aaron and his group followed the men out of the club and down the street in Aaron's silver SUV and then pulled up next to them. Someone in the SUV yelled out a racist slur, and then someone sprayed the car with bullets from an automatic weapon, killing two of the men. By 2013, Aaron's relationship with his drug dealer and weapon supplier, Alex Bradley, had deteriorated. They were feuding. One night, Bradley passed out in Aaron's car and woke up to find Aaron pointing a gun at his head. The next morning, someone found him in a parking lot, bleeding with a bullet hole between his eyes. He survived, but lost his right eye. He refused to cooperate with the police, deciding to get his own revenge, or at least money, from Aaron himself. Aaron's story came to its penultimate and seemingly predestined conclusion on a June night in 2013. He and at least two other men were in a rental car with Odin Lloyd, an acquaintance who was dating Aaron's fiancé's sister. Later, Odin Lloyd's body was found with multiple gunshot wounds in his chest and back. Aaron's keys were in Odin's pocket. Witnesses said that they had been together for the previous 10 hours discussing a planned pot deal. Police got a search warrant for Aaron's house. His expensive home security system had been destroyed. He handed them his cell phone in pieces. It had been smashed. The house was spotless because Aaron had hired a professional house cleaning team to come in that day. He was indicted for first-degree murder. The Patriots immediately cut all ties with him. Bill Belichick forbade anyone to mention Aaron's name anywhere in the team's facilities. All of his merchandise was pulled off the shelf. At trial, his attorney admitted that Aaron was present at Odin Lloyd's murder, but he was not the trigger man. He was just a scared 23-year-old kid, his attorney told the jury, who didn't know what to do and panicked. The jury didn't buy it. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He was then indicted for two counts of murder in the 2012 drive-by. He was acquitted of the charge as he and Alec Bradley blamed each other as to who actually fired the shots. Shortly after that acquittal, on April 19, 2017, prison guards found him hanging from his cell window with a bedsheet around his neck. He had wedged cardboard between the door and floor to make it hard to open the cell door, and spilled shampoo on the floor to make it hard for anyone to walk to him. The guards finally got in, rushed him to a hospital, but he was pronounced dead an hour later. In a strange footnote to his case, his murder conviction was overturned by the court based on an old common law doctrine called abatement ab initio. Since he had died while the case was on appeal, it reverted back to the beginning when he was, would have been considered innocent until proven guilty. The state appealed that ruling, and the conviction was later reinstated. 
So Aaron Hernandez's dreams of glory ended in a lonely prison cell in Massachusetts. His friend said that for a while he seemed to find a measure of peace in prison. He began to read the Bible. He reconciled with his mother. But even behind bars, his drug use continued. Perhaps his own epitaph is found in a letter to his daughter that was found in his cell after his suicide. He told her that he was entering a timeless realm and that he would see her again someday in heaven. Thank you, Dad. That's such an interesting story, and we wanted to cover it uh, during Super Bowl week because it's a very famous football player. And it was pretty shocking because this was the first and only NFL player who is currently playing to be accused of murder and then convicted of murder. Is that correct? Well, the first one convicted, there was a Baltimore Ravens player, a linebacker named Ray Lewis, who was accused of murder, but he was never, he was never convicted. Ah, well, the first convicted then, because OJ was retired. Indeed he was. Yes. Well, before we get into our discussion, let's go over the trends of the crime. And this section is sponsored by Style a la Mode. Because this crime was very recent, or this whole story was very recent, I didn't want to go over literal trends of the crime because we're all pretty much wearing the same things that we were wearing when Aaron died in 2017. However, if you're on TikTok, you do you should know by now that skinny jeans are out. Breaking news. But that's a whole nother discussion. Oh, no. I've got to clean <laughs> out my closet. Oh, no. <laughs> I really do, though, and it's sad. Anywho... I thought we would discuss the evolution of football uniforms. And if you know me at all, you know that the only football I like to watch is of the Chiefs. I don't care about any other team, and I only just started understanding football, but I only understand it if it's the Chiefs. This was hard to catch my interest, but it actually is pretty interesting. I found an article called The History of Football Uniforms by the National Purchasing Partners. And it broke the history into three sections. We have the leather years, which was from the 1890s to the 1940s. And then we have the plastic years, which was the 1940s to the 1990s. And we are currently in the spandex years, 1990s to today. Dad, if you have anything to add in any of this, please do. I shall. And when we get... When we were talking about the leather years, I want you to tell the thing that you told me earlier, because that was really interesting. Okay. All right. Let me go over the leather years really quick. The first uniforms were rugby type uniforms with wool sweaters and no padding. Had to be wool because you were playing outside in the cold. As the rules developed, leather under the jersey shoulder pads were produced and held in with elastic straps. Leather was the toughest material available at the time. The nose guard was invented one year before the helmet because apparently early players were more concerned with protecting their noses than they were their brains. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> were nose jobs available back then? Maybe that's why. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not that old. <laughs> You're not? No. <laughs> I mean, brain jobs aren't available now, so you would think that, you know, they'd be concerned, but whatever. The first helmets were made of soft leather sticking close to the head to provide protection of the ears. In the 1920s, the helmets were being produced with hard leather to provide more protection from concussions. What did you tell me earlier? Well, I had, I had mentioned to you um, one of the first teams to put a logo of sorts on their helmet was the University of Michigan Wolverines. And if anyone is a football fan, you know those iconic helmets. They're black with... Uh, gold stripes running from the front of the helmet over the top to the back. And uh, the reason for that is the quarterback wanted to be able to spot his players running downfield when he was going to throw a pass. And since everybody's helmets looked alike, he thought, well, if I can put this gold, if we can put a gold stripe on the helmet, I can identify my players, which he did. And uh, from there on, more and more teams began to adopt logos. So that was the first logo. Was that on a plastic helmet? No, that would have been leather. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, I have the first information on the first NFL logo on a plastic helmet. Okay. I Let's didn't. This didn't have any info about college teams, but that's really interesting. 
And it was kind of the same thing. They Fans loved it because they could tell on a black and white TV mm-hmm. which team was which. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the plastic years were 1940s to the 1990s. Plastic helmets were introduced in 1940 with sturdy plastic and padding. The year before that was actually when plastic helmets were introduced, but they were they would shatter and cause injuries just from the helmet. So they got rid of that and redid them better. And this was interesting. Helmets only became mandatory in the NFL in 1943, hmm. which was like three years after college. So they were required in college football way mm-hmm. before the NFL. So you'd mentioned the first NFL team to have a logo. Who yes. was it? What was it that was at the time the Los Angeles Rams. And they're in, where are they now? Well, they're back in Los Angeles. They they started as the Cleveland Rams. Oh, okay. And then they moved to Los Angeles in the 50s and then on to St. Louis, but then back to Los Angeles. So now once again, they're home in the... Uh, in the wonderful confines of Southern California and their most expensive stadium in the NFL. Wow. Now, cool. here's a bit of trivia for you. You've talked about the first team with a logo. Mm-hmm. Who's the only team in the NFL that does not have a logo on their helmets? Do, 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 Would do, it be do, the do, Washington do, football do, team do. because they don't have a logo yet? No, they they have the team numbers, I think, and they may have W on one side. Okay. It's the Cleveland Browns. They do not have a logo, just a solid brown helmet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because what do you put on a brown helmet? We now, don't like Baker Mayfield, sorry. That's true. <laughs> um, now, one other bit of trivia. What is the only NFL team that has a logo only on one side of their helmet? I have no idea. It's the Pittsburgh Steelers. They have oh. the they have that iconic U.S. Steel symbol on one side of the helmet, but the other side just solid black. Oh, cool! Uh, I I heard one time that the reason for that was the uh, Rooney family when they put the logo on didn't want to spend the money to put it on two sides <laughs> of the helmet, so they just put it I, I think on the left side so the fans could could oh, see it. But cool. I don't know. I wonder how expensive it is to put it on both sides. I don't know. <laughs> Well, the um, the logo that was the Rams logo that was put on mm-hmm. was actually a running back who just painted horns on his helmet. Mm. That's and cool. That was it in 1948. Huh. So according to this article. Now we're on to the spandex years, which is where we are right now. Spandex uniforms were born in 1997 with the Denver Broncos. And that was because they needed stretchy fabric. Like they started with the laces up the side to help stretch when people grab on. Then they did tear away fabric where the jersey would rip when someone grabbed it. And they were like, well, that's kind of wasteful. So they created the spandex uniform. So now they're all stretchy. So Mm -hmm. if someone tackles you or grabs on, it's not going to rip. There are nine pages of official uniform rules and regulations for the NFL. Players who violate the code can be fined up to $100,000, which to them may not be that much. But I've, I've heard that at every NFL game, there is someone from the commissioner's office whose sole job is to patrol the sidelines and make sure that the players' uniforms are, are up to code. So if he sees someone with their socks rolled down, he tells them to roll them up. If he sees someone with a jersey untucked, it gets tucked back in. I like that job. I I think you would, yes. But it pays pretty well. Yeah. Now, this predates the spandex years, but we we can't talk about this without talking about the ugliest NFL uniforms in history. Mm -hmm. Do you know who I'm talking about? I know you've said it, and I can't think. Give me a hint. You just mentioned the team just a moment ago. Browns. No, the Denver Broncos. Oh, the Broncos. When they started in uh, the old American Football League back in 1960, I believe. Um, their owner didn't have a lot of money, and there was a high school that had either quit playing football or had got new uniforms, and they wanted to get rid of their old ones, and he picked them up at basically a garage sale. Uh, they were brown and mustard yellow. Uh. Um, a lot of the players used the word diarrhea to describe them, but the thing that made them uh, still as the ugliest uniforms were the socks. 
They had vertical stripes running up and down. And after a year or two, the team finally got new uniforms. The, the, The team sponsored a bonfire out in the stadium at the parking lot where they invited the fans and they burned, burned all the them. uniforms. <laughs> That's funny. Well, I hate to break it to the Broncos, but their uniforms still aren't that cute. So <laughs> may need to get some new ones someday. Player safety is now the focus in uniforms, likely because of a recent billion-dollar class action lawsuit against the NFL. Players can now shop around for the safest helmets they can find. In 2018, the league started banning players who do not use helmet models that follow the safety standards. Which is good because as we will get into, concussions cause a lot of problems. So Mm -hmm. we'll get into that. Any other fun trivia about football uniforms, Dad? Who has your favorite uniform? It's not my favorite team, but I got to go with the Los Angeles Chargers. I I love their powder blue. I like their powder blue jerseys with the lightning bolt down the side of the pants and then the lightning bolt and the number on the helmet. That's always been my favorite uniform. Mm -hmm. Well, like I said, I only really watch the Chiefs, so I'm going to go with the Chiefs. (laughs) I don't think they're they're bad. I think red's a good color. It stands out. It's a good color. Chiefs, Chiefs are one of the few teams that have made very few changes to their uniforms over the years. Uh they moved to Kansas City, I think, in 63, and their uniforms look a lot like they did back then. So, you know, some teams seem to change their uniforms every five or six years, and uh, but the Chiefs are just one of the classic teams, kind of like the, the Cowboys, uh, the Packers that, that mm-hmm. have retained those, those uniforms for decades. Mm-hmm. That's cool. They are classy. We like classy in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the cocktail this week, Dad. Well, as you know, Aaron Hernandez played for the New England Patriots. They start, they came into the league as the Boston Patriots, but they're still, you know, in Massachusetts. So we're going with uh, just a classic Massachusetts cocktail, the Cape Cod. I was introduced to the Cape Cod by my dear friend Dave Mueller. Shout out to Dave. And we've shared many a Cape Cod out uh, on a on a summer evening or on a winter evening before fire pits. Very simple cocktail. Two ingredients: vodka and cranberry juice. We've got the tartness of the uh, of the cranberry juice with the kick of the vodka. Very popular amongst my fellow basic ladies out there. We love a good vodka cranberry or Cape Cod. I'll have to go to Cape Cod and drink one. Yes. I would like to go up there sometime. Me too. Never been to to Boston, but I'd like to. So let's get into our discussion. Most of my information, unless otherwise stated, is from my recent rewatching of Netflix's Killer Inside, The Mind of Aaron Hernandez. I thought I'd start with talking about Aaron in jail because he really responded to the structure. And I think that had to do with him not having his dad for his young adult life. Mm -hmm. The guards say he adapted to life in jail. I don't, they were saying jail on the Netflix show. That would mean prison. Yes, that would mean prison. I'm going to say prison then. I was a little confused. Guards say he adapted to life in prison really well. He liked the structure and not having people rely on him anymore. He moved into a cell like it wasn't a problem. And he told his mom that he liked the structure. And his rec time was in an eight by 12 cage. I'm guessing that was because he was on trial for murder, mm-hmm. which is kind of sad. So he would just like pace in there and do push-ups and stuff. He told himself that he wasn't in jail. He was in training camp. That's how he compartmentalized and didn't go crazy. Mm-hmm. He did, however, once assault another inmate after the inmate had been yelling at him through a vent. Aaron, Aaron must have been, he was uncuffed, must have been walking somewhere, wreck time, I don't know. So he waited for him at the bottom of the stairs oh, while out on wreck. And when the other inmate got to the bottom of the stairs, he was assaulted by Aaron. And the other inmate was cuffed, so he couldn't really defend himself. Pretty scary. Did, did that show talk about uh, Aaron still having access to drugs in prison? They talked about, uh, what's that drug called? K2? Um, yes. He did that all the time. Mm-hmm. 
it was rumored that Aaron was bisexual or gay. Uh, and as dad said, he was, um, his brother said that he was um, sexually abused by a babysitter or the son of a babysitter. And Aaron in high school experimented with his best friend sexually. And his best friend was uh, Dennis Sansuki. And he was the quarterback and Aaron was the uh, tight end. And they were best friends. And, uh, you know, to them, they would say at the time it was just experimenting, like having fun. But then Dennis later realized that he was bisexual. And he said, we kept doing it because, you know, we we were in a relationship and we have feelings for each other. They did have to hide this and their sexuality because of their homophobic fathers and the stigma around gay football players. Because it wasn't, I mean, it's still not super accepted to be a manly football player and be out as gay. There's only, we'll get to this, but there are only, from the time the article I'll talk about later was written, there were only 14 out NFL players Mm -hmm. in a hundred years. So. Now, I believe he did come out to his mother. I read that. Oh, did he? Uh, while he was in prison, okay. he and his mother talked, and he came out to her at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, never told his his fiance. Yeah, she. But she did say it. later, if if I would have known, it wouldn't have mattered. I would have still loved him. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, that you know that that whole stigma. You know, think with all the other problems he had, still trying to hide that, and evidently the way he covered it up was. He would make homophobic jokes in the locker room. He would joke around with the other players, you know, using a lot of gay innuendo. So he also in prison would say a lot of homophobic things and slurs on the phone because they played a lot of his phone calls Mm -hmm. with uh, his phone calls with Shayana and was very uh, said horrible things about uh, the transgender women who were in the male prison. Mm-hmm. So he he had difficult com- he had difficulty coming to terms with it and he asked um who did he ask? One of his attorneys was a gay man and he asked him if he thought you were born gay and the attorney said yes and then they just had a discussion about mm-hmm. it and I think he was was always a little confused yeah. or didn't you know, it's it's very conflicting, I feel like, for him. Yeah. You know, and the, the, a very sad thing right at the end of his life, um, there was a radio program in Boston uh, two days before he committed suicide. And he had just been acquitted in his second murder trial. And uh, the hosts uh, had on a, a Boston Globe reporter named Maggie McPhee. And they began talking about the rumors that he was gay and, of course, it just kind of degenerated into just some pretty crude locker room mm-hmm. humor about gay people and um, and gay football players. There were yeah. jokes like that. And uh, he, uh, two days later, he he committed suicide. And some people have theorized that you know maybe he felt he had been outed, mm-hmm. and um, he couldn't live with that. I you know I don't know if that's true or not, but it 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 is a coincidence that that publicity happened two days before he committed suicide uh the reporter maggie mcphee said she regretted it but yeah kind of (laughs) not really um esquire magazine had a great article about her and that radio show if anyone's interested you could probably just google esquire magazine aaron hernandez um so again just just kind of sad how people tried to get humor out of something like that, that that may have caused someone to to commit suicide. Just mm-hmm. well, and the uh, prosecution wanted to bring up his sexuality in, I believe, the double murder mm-hmm. trial, mm-hmm. but that gay defense attorney convinced the judge to make that not allowed because he wasn't out, and outing someone just to out them is not okay. Yeah. Like it really had nothing to do with anything. Yeah. Certainly would have been prejudicial. Right. Yeah. So they were not allowed to bring it up at all, which I thought was very good. Yeah. Speaking of uh, gay men in the NFL, uh, Ryan O'Callaghan was a big part of this mini documentary series. And he was an offensive tackle for the New England Patriots, as well as the Kansas City Chiefs. Do you remember him? I do not. 
He stated that he wanted to be as unattractive as possible so that people didn't question why he didn't have a girlfriend. So he he kept gaining weight and his coaches would ask him to lose weight, but he wouldn't because he didn't he just he said he wanted to be as unattractive as possible. And before he came out, he planned on dying by suicide when he was done playing football. He just he wanted to play football, didn't want to address his sexuality at all or his uh, sexual uh, preferences at all. This is a quote from Wikipedia. I know we love Wikipedia here. In June 2017, Ryan came out as gay in an interview with Outsports. He shared his struggle with self-acceptance and that he had convinced himself that no one would accept him as a gay man reconciling that he would end his life when his football career had ended. The turning point was when he came out to the chief's clinical psychologist and then later to teammates and family who were all supportive. He now speaks openly about his struggles and coming out. So I thought that was cool. It is. It is. You know, and I think most people will be supportive, particularly in in today's world. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think a lot of younger people, you know, people from your generation think it's that big of a deal one way or the other. Right. So. Well, and Gen Z, especially the generation behind me, it's, we were talking about this yesterday. It's just really not even a second thought. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I think our world is going in a really good direction. Yeah. Well, maybe we should uh, maybe we should move move forward a little bit and and talk about um, some of Aaron's medical issues. I, I know yes. after the uh, after the suicide, of course, an autopsy was performed and. Um, they found evidence of uh, a pretty pretty degenerative condition of his brain that was due to CTE. And I know you've done quite a bit of research mm-hmm. on that. What What is that and what does it cause? CTE is called chronic traumatic, oh gosh, en- encephalopathy. Encel- encephalopathy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Something like that. CTE. Let's just call it CTE. CTE. <laughs> I did not look up the pronunciation. Mike Webster, who was a Steelers player in the 70s, was the first known case of CTE. And it comes from repeated head trauma and brain trauma. So repeated concussions. It's very common in NFL players, common in men who play football, college level, mm-hmm. um, or just other sports where you get boxing, your head, boxing, wrestling, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not not pro wrestling, probably, but <laughs> no, I think certainly really? pro wrestling. Well, I mean, you know, yeah, it's, really it's fake and predetermined. Well, sure. You oh. know, they're constantly falling down and yeah, that's true. the headlocks. So, I mean, it's it's predetermined. But, yeah, they, their bodies take a huge amount of punishment. That's true. Uh, this CTE can lead to memory loss, depression, and dementia. And Junior Seau, who was another Patriots player, he played for other teams as well. He was a legendary player, right? Yeah, primarily known for his... Uh, Time with the Chargers. Okay. He shot himself in the chest so that his brain could be studied for CTE, which mm-hmm. horribly sad. Mm-hmm. Um, Aaron's family agreed for his brain to be studied after his death. And Dr. Anne McKee, who is a neuropathologist and expert in neurodegenerative disease at New England Veterans Administration Medical Centers. She was the main doctor studying Aaron's brain and she said that he had advanced CTE especially in the frontal lobes which highly affects your decision making and this was the first time McKee had seen such damage in someone of Aaron's age because he was only 27 mm-hmm. she said that it it had been building for for over a decade his CTE mm-hmm. so that would mean since high school yeah uh Chris Borland, who played for the 49ers, he was a pretty up-and-coming rookie. And he retired after just one year in the NFL because he was concerned over CTE and took his health more seriously than his Mm -hmm. football career. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that making headlines? I don't. I don't. Mm -mm. Apparently it did. I I remember. (laughs) This is interesting, uh, considering the Super Bowl today and Rob Gronkowski he retired from the Patriots a few years ago, and I remember watching him on CBS Sunday morning And uh, after he'd retired. And he said one of the reasons he retired was because of CTE, and he said he could he sensed his memory fading. He was having trouble with short-term 
memory loss. He, he felt his temper was sometimes out of control. And since he had retired, he said, I feel myself getting better. Mm-hmm. And then next thing you know, Brady gets traded to uh, Tampa Bay. He makes a call to his good buddy and tight end Ron, and now Ron's back. So, <laughs> yep. I guess the lure of the game sometimes outweighs the, the concerns. Yeah. And I'm sure the money. Too. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, it's, I bet that would be a really hard decision because it, these football players love football. I mean, it's their thing, mm-hmm. but it's scary because I'm sure they know even, you know, hurting your brain that much, it's going to affect your lifespan. So it's like, do you do something you love or? Yeah, it it would be interesting to to just look back at particularly some of the older players from the plastic age, you know, the fifties and sixties, uh, because concussions just weren't a big deal back then. I mean, I didn't I played football for three years. Well, I didn't play; I was on the sidelines. <laughs> um, but in high school, they made me the team manager because the coach told me I'd probably get killed if I tried to play. But um, you know, I remember back then if if one of our players. Uh, went down and acted groggy. We'd bring him over to the sideline and doctor wouldn't even examine him. You know, he would just come to me or one of the other managers. And we had these little capsules that they were ammonia capsules. And I would snap it between my fingers and put it under his nose. And wake him up. Yeah, to wake him up. And we'd send him right back out there. So it was mm-hmm. never a concern back then. It was just, well, he got his bell rung. He'll be fine. Get back out there. I wow. wonder the damage that may have been done to, mm-hmm. to a lot of people. Before that. Um, so at least I think the NFL's trying. Yeah. But football's a violent game and it's never going to be completely safe, I don't mm-hmm. think. I mean, you're you're taking blows to the head. And you're hitting people with your head. Yeah. So another sport that I was surprised to learn causes numerous and numerous concussions is competitive cheerleading. I mm. watched a show on Netflix called Cheer. It was really good. I recommend if you haven't seen it. And these women on, I mean, they're they're girl, like they're in high school and college. They're young women. One of them said she's had eleven concussions, and she's probably nineteen or twenty years old. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, it's grueling. Yeah, crazy. I wonder about I wonder about uh, soccer players. Yeah, heading the ball all the time. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a pretty hard ball that's moving at a high rate of speed, and they consciously just put their head in the way. I wonder. Wonder how many of them end up with concussions. Mm-hmm. And that's why I like to just sit at the piano bench or stand up and sing because I don't get concussions doing that. Oh, whatever <laughs> to their ears. <laughs> oh yeah, whatever. Maybe, maybe I'm causing CTE for you. Could be. (laughs) Another thing that really affects long-term health of football players is Toradol. And I found this research from an article called Toradol, the most popular drug in the NFL you haven't heard of by Kate Mui for GoodRx. Have you heard of Toradol? No. It's a pain medicine given to the players and it's given to them before games or before practices or like during games, just to make sure they stay on the field. Mm-hmm. It's an injectable, non-steroidal, anti-inflammatory drug administered to, the, okay, like I just said, before and during games. Former NFL players sued the league in 2011, claiming they were not adequately informed of its serious side effects that lingered after their careers ended. And this happened because the drug is not to be used long-term. It's supposed to be used no more than five days. It's a prescription drug. And using long-term will put you at risk for heart attack, stroke, stomach bleeding, and kidney damage. And it's also known to mask concussions. And in his prison phone calls, Aaron would joke about this with his former teammates from Florida about like, oh, I wish I could get Toradol in here. Or if they give you Toradol, you'll be fine. And like laughing about Mm. it, but serious stuff. So... Yeah, you know, it's all this is kind of making me feel guilty about wanting to watch the Super Bowl, but I know I will. Should have done this after the game. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, football is part of our culture mm-hmm. and it always has been and I assume always will be. But 
the more the the more coaches and administrators and and owners can work to make it safe, um, you know, the better it is. And it, it upsets me when I hear people today talking about how uh, I remember back when you know it was a, it was a real game for real men, and you know how many of those real men ended up with dementia or Alzheimer's or or serious injuries. So. Um, I, I applaud the leagues and the colleges for at least trying to recognize the the risks and and alleviate them. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of these people have families, and yeah, we shouldn't be intentionally shortening their lives or causing them long term health issues. Right. Something I wanted to cover before we end: um, Jose Baez, who famously represented Casey Anthony, the woman acquitted after probably killing her daughter. Just going to go out and say what I think happened. Uh, He was able to get her acquitted, and he also represented Aaron during the double murder trial where Aaron was found not guilty. Do -hmm. you know anything about Jose Baez? No, I just, I knew he was, I knew he was Aaron's attorney. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, no. Yeah, I just thought that was interesting because when it was announced that he would be Aaron's attorney for that trial, everyone was like, I wonder if he'll be able to get Aaron, you know, not guilty because of Casey Anthony. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, my understanding of that trial, it basically came down to to uh, Aaron and um, oh, his friend, Alex Bradley, pointing the finger at each other. Yep. Because they accused each other of pulling the trigger and, and there was no physical evidence. And evidently the jury <laughs> chose to. You know, they, they even feel there was enough evidence to convict Aaron. I mean, clearly one of them did it. Right. I think that's obvious. And that, and really, whichever one, I mean, if they were both there, I mean, they could have both been convicted of felony murder, which I, I don't, I, I haven't looked at the trial, but um, I mean, if you're present during a murder, you, you certainly could be liable for the murder, whether you pulled that. the trigger or not. So I, I don't know if the, if the prosecution didn't ask for felony murder or, you know, or maybe in Florida, it's not allowed, but I know in, in a lot of states, it wouldn't really matter who pulled the trigger. Mm-hmm. Um, they would have both been convicted. And I wondered that about Odin Lloyd, too, because mm-hmm. they think that those two guys were there, too. Mm-hmm. Did they get in trouble? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, one of they one of them, there were two other guys, my yeah. understanding. One of them was convicted as an accessory after the fact, which meant he helped cover it up. Mm-hmm. The other one pleaded guilty as an accessory after the fact. And uh, there was a girl, a woman, who also was convicted as an accessory after the fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, Aaron's girlfriend, Shayana, her fiance, Shayana, uh, was charged with obstruction of justice and destruction of evidence, but those charges were dropped. Mm-hmm. I'll say that. And back to Bradley, he. He's not a uh, shining example of a great citizen either, you know? So I feel like like he he scared Aaron, and oh, yeah. he was very tough guy, they were saying. And Aaron, after, like, this whole thing with him, he put up security cameras, mm-hmm. and he got really scared of this guy. Yeah, I mean, there, there was a phone call, a taped phone call of him. Calling Aaron and saying something, saying something like, you know, I got a lot of guns. I got a team six men deep and we're coming for you. Mm-hmm. Um, he wanted, gosh, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me. It's like $5 million maybe. And Aaron offered him 1.5 mm-hmm. to, to, to go away. Mm-hmm. And um, then... He wouldn't accept the 1.5, and so he sued Aaron. <laughs> and uh, then eventually they settled. They settled for an undisclosed amount. So, hmm. you know, he got um, it probably was more than a million and a half for this deal, um, for getting shot in the head and losing an eye. I right. don't know if that's <laughs> worth a million and two million dollars or not. Right. But, uh, yeah, there evidently there was a phone call, one of the taped phone calls from jail between Aaron and his attorney. And um, Aaron said something like, "Now, if we settle this lawsuit, they can't come. They can't come back and charge me for perjury." 
because I said under oath that I didn't shoot him. <laughs> so, oh and gosh. the attorney said, no, that it's confidential. So, you know, Aaron, again, did shoot his friend yes. and uh, cost him a cost him a couple million, at least, I would assume. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I look back on this whole thing and. Aaron Hernandez was was not a shining example of of uh, citizenship. He was a he was a bad guy. But you think back, there's a guy who no relationship with his father, and then the father died. Um, he was used. I think he was used by Urban Meyer mm-hmm. and Tim Tebow, for that matter, to get him out of college or get him out of high school at, at base, barely seventeen years old. Um, I always wonder what would have happened if somebody along the way, you know, a, a coach, a teacher, somebody, you know, had taken an interest in this kid when he was 12 or 13 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and cared about him. And cared about him, not not, not his, his football yeah. prowess. And and just tried to help him. Maybe someone did. We don't know. But I'm, I'm always thinking, you know, if, if we have an an opportunity to to help a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we never know. We never know what what that kid could contribute to society if they just had someone to care about them and help them. So I would just encourage all your all our listeners. If you see a kid that looks kind of lost, doesn't cost anything to be a friend. Mm-hmm. You never know. Even you just, just never know. Seeing how they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. You just never know. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a good place to end it today. All right. Well, we're going to head off and watch the Super Bowl. We're hoping right. for a Chiefs win. That's right. And number two. We shall see. Well, actually, number three. Oh, I'm sorry. Chiefs, Chiefs win have, number three. The Chiefs have won before. Sorry. But a consecutive yes. win. Sorry. Yes. Indeed. <laughs> All right. Well, we will see you guys next week. We will have a guest, Godfrey Riddle. He is the founder and owner of Civic Saint, which is an awesome Kansas City company. And we'll talk about that more when he's here. And we will be covering John Bonet Ramsey. Very exciting. All right. We'll see you guys next week. We'll see you next week. This has been Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. If you're enjoying our show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. Join our VIP Facebook group, Cocktails of Crime and Fashion VIP to discuss cocktails, crime, and fashion and to watch exclusive video content. Follow us on Instagram at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. We also have merch. There's a link in the episode notes. Cocktails of Crime and Fashion was written and produced by Mike Norland and Macy Norland Burkett. Our editor is Don Bailey at pretendmachine.com. Thank you to Alex Joaquim for composing our theme music and to Kaylee Bitter for designing our cover art.